So it's with great pleasure that we welcome to our series today special guest, Mr Michael Stryker, President of Sentinel Real Estate Corporation, headquartered in the US and in New York. Michael, great to have you on our program. I thought we'd start with the history of the business. Can you tell us a little bit about the origins of, of Sentinel? So first of all, thank you very much for, for having me on. I really appreciate it. Um, so Sentinel was originally the real estate principal investing group for Smith Barney, back when Smith Barney was a, was a partnership. Um, we invested the capital of the partners into real estate assets. So sort of as, as time went on, we began investing some of the corporate advisory clients, the CEOs, the CFOs, their, their personal capital, and then ultimately the pension funds of those large corporates. So our first institutional investors um, came on board in the, in the mid-70s, and we began our first open-end um, uh, institutional fund at that point. Um, sort of fast forward over time, in the late 80s, um, the gentleman who was directing that, that group um, at the time, my father, purchased the group from Smith Barney, and so we've been, we've been independent um, since 1988. And tell us about the, the evolution of the business over that time, remarkable three, four, five plus decades in business. How has is, how is Sentinel grown? So in the, in the early and mid-70s, I would say our, our product type was relatively um, diversified. So we went through the 80s um, and into the 90s, we began very much to, to focus on what in the U.S. we call multifamily, what is being called here built to rent, um, but effectively um, assets with single ownership vehicles that own and then rent out each unit to, to individual tenants. And so that's a business that um, that has seen tremendous growth within the U.S. Um, and as that sector has grown, our, our business has grown as well. So at this point, we manage approximately, it's about, in Aussie dollars, about $14 billion of, of, of real estate. And of that, the vast majority is multifamily. So probably call it 10 to $11 billion is, is multifamily. And so based in the US, but the business has expanded into Australia, which we'll get to shortly, but also the Netherlands and Germany. Tell us about the, the international expansion. So about 20 years ago, our, our exclusive client or customer base were, were US institutions. So pension funds, insurance companies, endowments, folks like that. There was a point, call it around 2003-ish, um, where those investors said, you know, I'd like you to start taking a look at, at investing overseas for us. And so we, and this, there was one client in particular who asked us to do that. We began to look overseas and we began to look at investing in, we actually looked at doing apartments in, in the UK, we looked at doing some industrial in Germany and sort of, unfortunately over time that one client fell away. But in, in, in the course of that sort of expansion or that sort of um, research into expansion, we, sort, we identified the Netherlands, uh, Germany and Australia as, as three key components of, of future, um, I'll call it imported capital into the U.S. for the purposes of, of investing into, into, into U.S. multifamily. And so um, at that point, we established an office in, um, a direct office in, in Amsterdam. Um, we currently have an office in Munich as well. And then also we've got um, both on the capital raising side and the direct investment side here in, here in Melbourne. So. So for those watching that may not be aware of Sentinel's operations and presence in the US, you focus on the multifamily sector. Tell us about the size and scale of your operations there. So the business that we have in the US from the, on, on the multifamily side, it's about, as I mentioned earlier, it's about a, a 10 or $11 billion portfolio, which is roughly 27,000 apartment units. Um, those units are in 
in the United States, our typical multifamily asset has about 300 apartments in it. It has centralized management, it has a swimming pool, it has a fitness center, it has a clubhouse, things like that, which are considered to be, sort of for, for U.S. standards, sort of resident amenities. Um, those assets are generally along the eastern seaboard of the U.S., the western seaboard of the U.S., and through sort of the, the, the southern portions of the U.S., which are generally considered to be the, the high-growth corridor. So in total, of the you know, 27,000 apartments, we probably own 100 different apartment communities throughout the U.S. It's extraordinary size of, of the business. Tell us about the economic conditions, the economic market conditions for the commercial real estate sector in the U.S. What are the, the key trends or themes at the moment? One of the, the spaces that we've paid particular attention to over over a, a long period of time um, is the is the demographics within the U.S. And so we're seeing both an aging of the baby boomers um, as well as sort of an aging of the millennials. And so as, as those trends developed over the last decade, our basic thesis had been we expect that folks will either move out of family homes into rental communities or smaller or even condos for that matter, or folks who were living in sort of smaller urban apartments would, would look to find larger spaces and more suburban areas more appropriately for more appropriate for families and children and things like that. Um, and so that was a that was a trend that was that was moving forward at, at what we consider to be sort of a, a standard pace. And then COVID came along. And so COVID really accelerated that trend where when you think about images of New York City in May of 2020 with vacant streets and sort of nothing going on except for an occasional pigeon flapping through. That trend really drove people both out of urban centers into suburban areas and then out of sort of more expensive areas in the Northeast into, into, into less expensive areas in sort of the southeastern parts of or southeast and southwest of the, of the United States. And so from our perspective, that actually um, that fit really well with where our portfolio was located. Um, again, because our thesis was that over time this would happen. We didn't quite realize it would happen sort of almost instantaneously. But, but as a result of that, the portfolio that we currently have is very well situated to, to react to the current drivers in the U.S., which are you're still seeing good, good demographic growth. You know, it's, it's obviously the, the, the GDP information is, is a little bit cloudier than it, than it might have been sort of, you know, six months ago. But that continues to move forward. And, and we're definitely in a position now where we're seeing that because there was relatively limited supply in these suburban markets and there was a large influx of people, uh, we saw very accelerated rental rate growth. And so that is beginning to taper off just as a function of sort of a slowdown in the economy. But, but overall, we've seen sort of very strong growth within that subset of the, of the multifamily space. Um, and we continue to expect to see that. I mean, it, it, that's a, again, that was demographic driven. Um, again, there was obviously a, a, an event that, that accelerated those demographic moves, but it definitely feels like that is, that is continuing. There's nothing to, there's nothing in sort of our, our sort of research that would, that would suggest that that trend is, is, is changing or reverting back to even where it was. So. So that brings us to your Australian operations. As I understand it, you conducted research here back in 2011. What, what attracted the business to start looking at, at deploying capital into the Australian commercial market? So one of the things that, and so I guess, again, sort of taking a step back in the early 2000s, as I mentioned, we identified Australia, given the superannuation business, a great place to raise capital. The first meetings we took, we went into any one of your superannuation funds and said, we do multifamily. And they said, what on earth is that? And so we sort of started from a very low base 20 years ago. But we really have, have tried to take the time to do, to do a couple things. One is to explain to people sort of the value of having institutional, owner, institutional ownership within the residential sector. Um, we, as, 
as owners, as operators, are, are there for the long term. Um, our goal is to create product which we will then own sort of in decade chunks um, and not sort of be out of it in six months. So, so that was sort of something that we, we recognized did not exist in Australia. Um, and the question came, you know, is there a reason for that? Does it make sense that it's here? Does it make sense that it's not here? And so we went through a number of different steps and we talked to all sorts of different people about all sorts of different things. And the common refrain was, well, there, were a couple, there were a couple of pieces that were fairly common at the time. One is that Australians didn't rent. As we all know, that's, that's, not, that's not true. There's obviously the Australian mindset of, I want to have the Australian dream, I want to own a home at some point. But in order to get to that point, at this point in time, right, it takes, it takes a decade, 15 years to save enough to, to have the, down, the deposit to, for, the, for the down payment. So there's the idea and then there's the reality, which, is, which, are, which are different in this case. Um, the other piece in that was that sort of the, there was a common, again, from our perspective, misunderstanding about the economics of our business and how it works. And so if you are an investor, who buys something off the plan, you're effectively paying a retail level. You're then having to operate a property where you personally may not be a real estate professional. You're gonna hire people, you may hire, you know, you have to you have to manage your tenancy. There are all these other pieces to the business which cost money, which as an institutional owner who has centralized management, as on-site maintenance facilities, those are costs that um, that we're able to not eliminate but reduce just through economies of scale. And so the more we went through and sort of spoke with people, the less we, sort of the more comfortable we were that there was an operational reason for having the, for having the asset. What we then realized was that at the end of the day, it was more of a finance-driven outcome than it was sort of a sort of a, a stated decision into why there was no multifailure, why there's no builder in Australia. So if you think about how a, how a typical strata development gets financed, to build to sell, they pre-sell, they have to pre-sell 70% plus or minus of the building in order to get financing. That's something that if you, don't, if you don't get the financing, you can't finish your project, and the only way to get the financing is to pre-sell units. So at the end of the day, there's no way to get to a 100% owned asset um, from a developer. And so we basically came to the, the decision that we would equity finance the first development. We'd test it out on our own. We'd see if it worked. Um, we would build what we believed was a build-to-rent project that had all the attributes that we thought were appropriate for the for the product. Um, it was, I'll call it from from a economies of scale perspective, it was subscale, but we still felt it had enough of the attributes that we could sit there and say, you know what, this is what it looks like. You know, we're very comfortable with the income side of this business. The expense ratios will get better as you add more units to this to the to the asset itself. Um, and so as a way sort of from our perspective to beta test the, the strategy. And so we did that. We bought a site or bought four sites actually out in, out in Subi um, and WA. And so we've basically been rolling those out um, sort of, I'll say sequentially. And sort of it's been, it's been fantastic. It's been a wonderful, wonderful success. So. so let's talk about that first project. You mentioned Subiaco, Western Australia. What made Western Australia and, and Perth favourable over other cities in Australia, at least for that initial project scoping? So what is, what is interesting at the time is we spent a lot of time looking into Australia and trying to figure out which city should be the first place to, to, to invest. And if you think back to sort of that 2014, 2015 timeframe, there was a tremendous amount of, I'll call it enthusiasm in Melbourne, in Sydney, which was driven in large part by, by international capital, large part Asian international capital. And so we sort of sat there and said, these cities are obviously growing, but the pricing around land in those cities didn't make a lot of sense to us relative to sort of what the, what the product was that was going to be delivered. 
flip side was Perth was coming off the mining boom. You could sit there and say, you know what, today, obviously, Perth is a, I'll say, the economy or the population, whichever metric you're looking at, is diminishing. But by the time you purchase the land, go through the DA process, put it under construction, deliver it, you're talking about it's going to be three, four, five years later. And so from our perspective, from a from a purely timing perspective, that was attractive to us. We could buy land that was from a seller that didn't have a lot of other options for, for sales. We would then take it through the DA process, and by the time we built it and delivered it, we figured it would be a different market that we would enter into than the market that we had been, we'd been sitting in just by a function of, of time and time passing. And so that was sort of a, a piece of the thesis. The other piece of the thesis is the Perth as a city is, is very much automotive driven, and it looks a lot like some of our growth markets in the southern parts of the U.S. where you have a CBD, you've got lovely suburbs, there may be an element of public transportation associated with it, but at the end of the day, everybody drives everywhere. And so, again, just from a, I'll call it pure familiarity standpoint, it made a lot of sense to us. Like we, we, could, we could very simply understand that, that concept and sort of how those cities ended up working and the types of locations that Americans generally liked in those types of cities. And so I would say the biggest leap that we had to take with that project was are we comfortable that we can sort of import into Australia an American mindset while making sure that we were still being thoughtful and aware about the local customs and cultures in each of these places? And so, again, from our standpoint, that was the biggest risk in that. The, the economics seemed to make sense to us. The location seemed to make sense to us. Frankly, the ability to deliver the product that we wanted seemed to make sense to us. It was just, was the product that we were imagining a product that Australians would be interested in. And again, our sense of having spent as much time as we have in Australia is that it was something that would be, um, but we, we, didn't, we didn't know. <laughs> so we had to try. <laughs> yes, you know, you're, you're well ahead, still well ahead of so many other domestic players here in Australia in terms of actually getting these projects out of the ground. And you mentioned risk there. What, what did that risk management framework look like when you were conducting that risk analysis? What were some of the key inputs? What we had to understand, and again, fortunately, it has, we haven't needed to, to pull the valve, but we had to know that if, the, if at the end of the day this did not work, there was some way for us to, to, to get our money back. And so from our standpoint, that meant designing a project which was sort of, I'll call it, fully strata compliant. And so if we ever down the line needed to convert the building, which is held in single title, into a, you know, a strata ownership model with corporate body and all this, um, we could do that and then we could sell off each of the units individually. And so, again, from our standpoint, we just had to know that that was an exit strategy. And after we did that, then the rest of it would be, would be fine. Again, we were building at a builder's cost or, you know, some plus a little margin. Um, and so we weren't worried at the end of the day that we'd necessarily lose money. Obviously, it might not be, it might not be the most profitable venture and you might spend a lot of time and effort trying to figure it out, but at least it wasn't, we didn't ever consider that it would be a, a loss of, of capital, maybe just people's time and energy and, and things like that. So, and at the time we had lots of it. Now we're more tired. But. <laughs> <laughs> and from that first initial project in Subiaco, next came a project in West Melbourne, which is underway and more recently the acquisition of a site in the Gold Coast. 
Talk us through that expansion. Why West Australia, Victoria and Queensland? Was that deliberate or was that just where the opportunities were? So it was it was deliberate. Our expectation with, with sort of the, the platform that we've developed here in Australia, or developing and, and will continue to develop, is that it will be a national platform. And so, yes, yeah, so we've got sites in WA, we've got sites in, in Victoria, in Queensland, actually there's a site in, um, in Adelaide we're working on. And so the end goal with all of this is that we will have a, a national apartment platform here in Australia. And so that's that's intentional because our our perspective is very much this is a product that works anywhere that people want to live. This is not sort of an urban center city product. This is not sort of something that needs to take place in, you know, in mining towns. This is this is housing that many, many people will be very excited to live in um, once they are introduced to it, once they learn about it, once they once they engage with it. And that's certainly been our experience out in out in, in, in Subi where um, we've seen exceptional tenant retention. Word of mouth is fantastic. We have, at this point, we're fully leased. We have wait lists. Um, it's really been a product that it's been extremely exciting to see how well received it's been, um, and frankly, quite quite gratifying just to understand that this is something that that works well in Australia, and it's something that you know, sort of as a firm we're quite proud of. So. And what do you think made has made that project so successful and so well received by its tenants? So I think that one of the beliefs about the build to rent sector prior to delivery of that product was that it is an inferior product. If you build for rental, that's bad. If you build for homeowners, that's good. And so I think one of the things that we've been able to demonstrate is that there is a high quality product, a premium product that we offer to residents, which frankly is, is an improvement in many cases on, I'll call it apartment living in a strata run building where some of the people live there, some of the people don't. Some of the people rent their units out, some of the people don't. And what we tend to find is that that leads to a sort of a, a building that deteriorates more rapidly than it should, just in terms of deferred maintenance or just cleanliness, common area maintenance, things like that. And so I think what we're quite pleased with is that we're able to deliver this product. I think that folks have understood over time that in addition to the units that they're renting, they're also part of a broader community. And that's something that's been extremely important for us in the U.S. is just to make sure that there is community engagement amongst the amongst the, the renters. Um, because, you know, if you're a renter, more likely than not, maybe you came from a different city, so you don't know that many people. Maybe you're a downsizer who's a little bit anxious about sort of not having their own home. And so just the ability to sort of go into the you know, we get simple things, but we give out free coffee. So people go down and they take their cup of coffee and they chat with their neighbor. And so it leads to it leads to relationships that, from our understanding, are are extremely uncommon in a typical apartment community or a typical apartment building because they don't have the community. And I think probably the last thing is that our building out in, in Subi is it's the it was or it is the first um, carbon neutral certified apartment project in, in all of Australia. And so I think that the residents take pride in, in being part of something like that. We're obviously sort of making sure to be on the on the forefront of, of sustainability has been important for us as a firm. But I also think now that we've delivered that project, um, the residents take pride in that in that as well and just participating in that as well and just understanding sort of they can live in sort of lovely a lovely environment while doing good for, for the environment. So Depending on who you speak to, some groups have a minimum requirement of 200 apartments or 250 apartments, some less, some more. What are the, the fundamentals that make these projects stack up in, in your view? Yeah, I, mean, I would say that so our, our project in, in Subiaco, it's currently the first two phases which have been delivered are 171 units 
and in total, once we deliver the second two, it'll be called 380 to 385. Our project here in, in West Melbourne is 172 units. I would put both of the 171 and the 172 on the lower end of the range. Still perfectly viable individually, but our target is sort of that 200 to 350 sweet spot. Uh, maybe even up to 400 on the high end, but that's where you really get the good economies of scale without making a project so large that you have to both introduce sort of an, an element of middle management, which obviously is, is additional cost, um, but also once they get too large, that, that sort of that idea of, of community and, and, and sort of knowing both the management staff as well as sort of other folks in the beginnings, that, that, that begins to sort of fray a little bit. It's just, it just becomes too big, right? You go from having a couple hundred people in a building to having a couple thousand people in a building, and that's, that's a different animal. As you're aware, there's been a, a significant injection of capital into the build-to-rent sector here in Australia. How have you seen the, the sector itself evolve over the last 24 months or so? I mean, I think from, from our perspective, we've been cheerleading the sector for years, and, we're, and it's, 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 it's fantastic to see it um, sort of beginning to come to, to fruition. Again, the, the supply-demand dynamics in Australia necessitate all sorts of new housing. Um, and new, new housing sort of opportunities for, for folks. And it's, it's, it's very gratifying to see that the built-around sector is, is, is sort of well-placed within that conversation. We've always said that sort of as a, as a business, um, if we're the only person who's doing this, then, then we haven't been successful. Um, and the fact that all these other groups are now coming in to, to, to sort of engage in, in, a, in an opportunity that we think is, is, is both, has been present historically, is present now, and has sort of a, an extended runway going forward, um, we're, we're excited to see that. I want to ask you about the relatively recently announced fund with PGGM for around $1.5 billion. Yeah. How did that deal come about and, and what's the mandate for investment? So PGGM is a client of ours in the US in, in a number of different um, vehicles. We've been speaking to them, we've been speaking to them about Australia sort of for, for several years and, and I would say one of the unfortunate byproducts of COVID was that no one could come to Australia, and so we actually had a had a had a trip with them scheduled for this our, you know, American Spring of 2020, and obviously that that never happened. So it took a couple of years longer than than we had originally planned. But um, they are an investor, obviously they're they're a, they're a large, sophisticated global investor, and they believe very firmly both in in global housing as a sector, um, in Australia as as a country, and so. Um, we were fortunate to be able to, or we are fortunate to be able to work with them in, uh, in developing build-to-rent product here, here in Australia. With them, the, again, the remit is, is national. Our expectation is to build sort of a global, excuse me, a, a national portfolio um, for them of, again, sort of the 200 to 400 unit um, build-to-rent product um, in, in locations that are typically well-serviced by public transportation, have good access to parks, good access to, to schools, recreation, employment, um, that's generally sort of what we look at with our projects. Based on, on the conversations you're having with institutional investors, how have you seen that their preferences have changed toward deploying capital into this sector? Are they much more aware and exposed of it now? Yes, certainly. And, and I think what's, and so it's it's been an interesting evolution within the space, even within the, the Australian superannuation funds, where it's it's definitely been a case where international capital has driven the initial phases of this sector, um, but we are. It feels like to us, at least, that we're finally at a at a point where domestic capital is now engaging in the space as well, which has always been, again, from our perspective, it has always been a goal. Um, if you look at the size of the superannuation 
business in or just pool of capital in, in Australia, and you look at how much those groups invest into real estate and then domestic real estate, you're talking about enormous pools of capital that have the ability to, to enter into the residential space overall. And we think over time, we'll be able to demonstrate to them that it's a, it's a viable investment strategy. And it's also the type of product that they can, they can feel good investing in. Yes, you know, one of the key benefits of Build to Rent is its ability to ease housing shortages over time. When you look at the long term, how critical do you see in this easing Australia's housing shortage? I think that there are any number of levers that are going to have to be pulled um, in order to in order to satisfy the demand. And and it's an interesting. And we've been talking about this for 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 a while now, where there's an interesting dynamic that's now developed in Australia. And because you have such a tight rental market, it is difficult to figure out where you will house the people that you need to solve the problem of housing shortages. Right to do all this, you've got a severe labor shortage within the construction industry. And so how do you get people to come and help you build if you have nowhere for them to stay? And so it's a little bit of a chicken and egg problem that, that's, that's developed here in Australia, but build to rent will be a piece of the solution. There are, there are all sorts of other spaces that need to be filled as well, just because on its own build to rent cannot solve the whole problem, um, but it is absolutely a, a wonderful piece of a solution. ESGs are another key consideration. What are some of the considerations that you make in the context of ESG, whether it be in build to rent in multifamily in the US or, or across other asset classes? There are a number of different pieces to, to, to answer that question. First and foremost, the, the, the design of the building is an extraordinarily important piece of, of both the energy efficiency as well as just sort of how the energy efficiency as well as just sort of how environmentally sort of sustainable and conscious you, you can be within the asset. And so that all begins sort of day one of planning. Um, and so even with our building in, in Subiaco, which again was delivered in 2019 and received the carbon neutral certification, that design process started, you know, in 2015, 2016. So even back then we were thinking about how do we make this building greener? How do we make sure that we can be sort of thoughtful about sort of being sustainable in the long run? So that design piece is important. Um, what's also important to us is making sure that the materials that we use, we're using with, with partners who are also going through their own sort of net zero journey, making sure that the if we do need to replace things down the line, the, that products, those products are, are recyclable, are sort of thoughtful about sort of, you know, I'll say landfill use. Um, things like that are, are very important to us. Our buildings have photovoltaic cells on them, PV cells. Um, they have, you know, rainwater capture, recycling. A lot of the aspects, again, that we would have designed several years ago are now finally coming to, coming to the forefront. And, and we're really, we're pleased that we've, we've acted in that manner. The business has had 50 plus years in developing and investing in multifamily over in the US and you're one of the most experienced now here in Australia as well. What are some of the, the learnings that you've taken from your experiences in the US and then imported, uh, imported or imported over here in Australia? So I think that there are, there are sort of two pieces to that. One piece is that we are, we are a fiduciary, right? Most of the money that we are investing is not ours. It is pensioners from healthcare workers, from tourism folks so so it's not our money and so it's important for us to remember that like we are making decisions on behalf of other people and we want to make sure those decisions have a positive economic result for for those people at the same time we realize that 
from a, at, at an execution level, we expect to be here. We've been here for 53 years. We expect to be here for another 53 years. And so as part of that, it's important to make sure that we, you know, we sort of deal with people honestly, we're trustworthy, we're thoughtful about what we do because yes, the world is big, but in many cases, the world is very small. And so your reputation is, is essential. Um, it's very easy. It's very hard to get a good reputation. It's very easy to destroy a reputation. And so for us, it's always been very important to make sure that we are constantly thinking about maintaining our, our reputation, making sure that people understand that we're being thoughtful and conscientious. And we're, we're not always right, but it's not that we did something intentionally wrong. And so um, that's been sort of a, an important piece of our business sort of for, for decades at this point, which is just making sure at the, at the end of the day, you can go home and feel good about what you did. And when you look at the size of, of the sector and, and the potential size of the sector here in Australia for build to rent, how big do you think that could be in the long term, whether it takes five years, whether it takes 15 years or more? I mean, pe people ask me that question and, and I sort of look at it and say, I see no reason that our Australian business cannot be the same size as our US business. And that's just based on sort of where we are in the, the sort of the growth of housing in Australia, the amount of demand that is coming in, the limited supply channels that are that are being developed within Australian housing. I mean, we're we're just very we're very comfortable that this is a, a meaningful opportunity, um, and something that again we spend a lot of time on this. Um, we have a lot of folks here. Both our, there's the team in in Australia, but um, we've got you know sort of 150, 160 people in New York, and I would say, in some way, shape, or form, probably a third to a half of those touch our Australian business. And so there's obviously the team on the ground here in Australia who, who, who do the lion's share of the work, but there are a lot of components of the business that are being supported by, by our operations in, in the US. And over time, that'll all shift to Australia, but for now, it's a, it's a key component to be able to transition some of our knowledge that we have in the US in the sector into Australia to make sure we're providing what we see as sort of a best-in-class product in Australia. The business has also got substantial holdings, portfolio holdings in the commercial sector over in the US in terms of office buildings and the like. Do you see any investment appetite in the Australian market for not just build to rent but to invest in other sectors, be it commercial office building? On our side, you mean? Yes. Um, you know, I think that that's a fair question. It's, and it's, I would say that I guess there are two pieces. One is we see the build to rent opportunity as being, as being so substantial that that is that is absolutely worth our worth our time. The other piece is that, frankly, there are a lot of operators on the office side, on the industrial side, who are who are highly qualified, very knowledgeable, and have have the types of experience that make those businesses more difficult for us to enter into. Um, so we sort of look at it and say it means that because we are, you know, multifamily build to rent experts, we have a an advantage when we're looking at this space in Australia um, over somebody who comes out of a commercial background. But conversely, somebody who comes out of commercial background has an advantage in the office or industrial space relative to, to our being multifamily experts. And so it feels to us like we're very happy operating on the residential side um, and the commercial side. Although we do have experience in the U.S., there, there are a number of qualified managers here in Australia. And so it doesn't feel like that's a competitive space that we necessarily have any sort of advantage in. And so close out our discussion, I, I thought would change tack slightly. You've been a prolific real estate investor across your business career. What does it take to be successful or to become successful as a real estate investor and in business more generally? As I, as I was mentioning earlier, one of the things that we, we really do believe sort of at our, at our core is that we will be here for a very long time and that our reputation is, is essential for us. Um, and so that to us is sort of a, a, a major driving factor in, in sort of 
how we operate as a firm, um, certainly as a person, that's, that's important to me as well. In terms of sort of more specific things to do in terms of you know, how to become successful in, in real estate, I think you need to start at the bottom. Um, I think you need to understand the assets sort of at a very tangible level, whether it's on the coming from the construction side, whether it's coming from the acquisition side, or whether it's coming from sort of the asset management or property management side. Those are all different avenues into, into the business, but it's, it's important that you truly understand how these projects work, because that's the only way to be able to identify whether from, a, from an economic standpoint they make sense. You also have to be, again, from my standpoint, I think you have to be inquisitive. You have to be thoughtful about what's important to whether it's your tenants and residents, and then just making sure that the buildings that you're either producing or acquiring um, or retrofitting have the attributes and the location specifically that that is interesting to your to your residents or your clients or your tenants because it doesn't do you much good if you buy a beautiful building in the middle of nowhere that nobody wants to get to. So, <laughs> <laughs> Michael Stryker, president of Central Real Estate Corporation, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. This was great. Appreciate it.